Hello, everyone. This is Ron Bush with Ron Bush Consulting Incorporated, and you're listening to Chatting with Ron. Chatting with Ron provides an opportunity for you to hear from leaders who are making a difference. They may be authors, as is the case today. They may be CEOs, government officials, or from any walk of life. Chatting with Ron is broadcast on WVLP-FM on Monday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. and Friday afternoons from 1 to 2. WVLP is a local FM station in Valparaiso, Indiana, located at 103.1 on your FM dial, or stream us from WVLP.org. Check out their website to find out all that they're doing in the community and how you can be a part of that. Also, check out Ron Bush Consulting to see what we're doing in in the planet and uh, and visit us if you'd like information on how we can help your business uh, drop us a line the email address is there if you prefer to listen to us on demand you can find chatting with ron on apple podcast spotify overcast breaker and many more just look for us on your favorite podcast platform under chatting with ron we're hosted through anchor fm and if you're wanting to try podcasting for yourself i heartily recommend them now we've got a great guest for you today Many of you probably heard uh, Larry on part one of this interview. Larry Young has written an excellent book, Walk the Sales Plank, Over 60 Proven Sales Strategies. He's a popular keynote speaker, and today we'll be discussing leadership, a skill that is always needed and a subject that uh, always needs teaching. So welcome, Larry. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me back. We, uh, We had a great conversation last time, and we spoke about business development strategy in your new book, Walk the Sales Plank. I hope our listeners have checked that out. If, if not, I hope they do. It's an excellent book, I, excellent read, and great tools uh, downloaded from your website. So by all means, before we get off, give, uh, give your website address, how people can uh, connect to you. I see you, especially in reading your bio, that you became known as a, a market resuscitator and that you were brought in to rebuild markets that were somewhat left for dead. We can focus today, and I'd like to, on what it takes to lead that type of massive change. Absolutely. Go ahead and, and let's start. Why would you take on such challenges over and over? Didn't you want an easier road? <laughs> yeah. Well, some days, Ron, I, I think I did. You know, when you, <laughs> you looked out the window and said, there's got to be an easier way. You know, you, some leaders are, are great at uh, uh, running mature markets, you know, and, thing, and, and whatnot. And I acquired that skill over time. But I was brought in the market resuscitator. So I was a market president and I was brought in. The, the market resuscitator is kind of a, one of those uh, legendary titles that people start to give you because of success that you've had. But could I have had an easier way? You know, absolutely. The first job, the first market that I took over, I was the only person that applied for the job. Wow. Nobody wanted it. It was one <laughs> of those markets that were losing money and the people weren't engaged. They had a poor reputation in the community. You know, there just was nothing that was going well. And my manager said to me, he said, okay, now that's the truth of what you're looking at. But Larry, if you could turn this around, you're going to be afforded all sorts of opportunities. And so that's where the career started in terms of taking over those markets, turning them into something. There's an interesting uh, uh, research. I just told a couple thousand leaders this in a, in a, in a keynote speech, not that long, last fall. And uh, the Genome Project did a study and they looked at 17,000 CEOs. They analyzed their, their behaviors. And one of the things that they found, Ron, is from the time that that person got their first job 
to when they became a CEO, 24 years. That's how long on average it took somebody starting, let's say, in the corporate world to reach that rank. But then they started looking at the individuals that did it in half the time or a third of the time. And what were the characteristics of those people, of leaders? And one of the common themes was that they all took on a mess or they took on something that nobody else wanted to do and they turned it into something. And that gave them a fast rise. And I'm kind of a testament to that. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. When you stepped into these markets, what were the first thing you analyzed? What... How does it apply, uh, I guess, does it apply to businesses that are also doing well? Do they all have to be, uh, I guess, in shambles or do the same principles hold true for both? No, mainly the the, the principles hold true, whether it's a a startup, there's maybe just more focuses on certain things. So there was really, uh, first and foremost, I looked at the people. Were the people engaged? Did I have the right people? Was there a process in place to be successful? Those are those are things a lot of times there there there's a lot of animosity the culture is something that i looked at and spent a a lot of time you know was the was the culture of of people that wanted to win and do something good was there a vision i always looked at that usually when i took over for a leader that maybe hadn't performed well there was usually a lack of vision and then the last thing which we talked about in in the first podcast which was really having a process to grow revenue Profit, hmm. profitable revenue. And that's why I wrote the book, Walk the Sales Plank. That focuses just on that particular one. Now, if I'm correct, I counted five things that you just listed. So let's go through those. You mentioned yeah. having a vision, and we hear a lot about this. Tell us a little bit about mission statements versus vision statements and how you used vision to be successful. Yeah. There's a uh, mission statements kind of got a bad rap run in the 80s and 90s. You know, they were they were usually really long and they hung on a wall and nobody did anything with them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, mission statements, I think, are really important. I work with some organizations now that have great mission statements. It's a it's a guiding principle for how who you are and what you really stand for with your organization. And they use that as a barometer, if you will, or, or a measuring stick against their decisions. So I always ask organizations when I come into them, if you're not using it to help you make your decisions, either you've outgrown your mission statement or you've got the wrong mission statement. Now, vision statement is kind of interesting. And you hear there's a lot written around, you know, vision and what it is. Here's what I think, and and you don't hear this very often. Vision statement has very, a, a lot of different contexts that you use in business. But here's the thing that I always found is it always helped guide my people during the tough times. So when you have a vision statement, a vision statement really is designed to say, here's what I want to be as an organization when I grow up. That's Mm -hmm. what I always say, you know, what do I want to look like when I grow up? And so a lot of times when you have a very clear vision, Ron, a vision statement, it can help people if you lose that big sales deal, you lose that contract, right? I, my, if my people were listening that, that reported me, they, they could already tell you what I'm going to say. And I would usually pat them on the back and say, but it's not always going to be this way. This is, there will be a day when we look like this. And that's what a vision statement, in my opinion, uh, really, really reflect. I'll tell you, your, your, uh, your listeners, a really cool story. So when I took over that first market, um, you know, I, I pulled in the first day and I came in and I met everybody and did all that. Well, about the second day, I realized that when we would go to lunch, the parking lot was virtually empty. We had virtually no customers. I mean, the, it, this market was in bad shape. 
and I would park at the back of the parking lot, the back stall. Now, it wasn't a huge parking lot, but I would park at the back, even though the parking lot was empty. So now fast forward a couple couple weeks later, and I'm in a meeting with my team, and they said, Larry, you know, we got to ask you, we've been dying to ask you something. He goes, why do you park clear in the back? You know, and I mean, there's no customers in here. Why do you, why do you go clear out there? Now, of course, I could laugh that it was for exercise, but, but I told them, I said, look, you have to understand, first and foremost, leaders park in the back. Leaders don't park up front. Leaders park in the back. And I said, the second thing is that it won't always be this way. There will be a day when this parking lot is full and the, and the lobby is full of customers. There will be a day. And there was three or four uh, of the people that reported me that kind of snickered. They didn't believe. And eventually it wasn't because of that, but those individuals went on, you know, they, they didn't stay with the organization because they didn't buy into the vision, but the people that did. So now fast forward about a year and a half later on, this is a great, great ending to this story. So now I go to lunch and I come back and it's, you know, it's about 1.30 and there's no place to park except for my slot clear in the back. And I walk through the, the parking lot and the parking lot is filled with cars. I walk in the lobby, the teller line is full. Every banker has somebody in their cubicle. And I smile because that vision had been fulfilled. And that's how you use those. Gosh, what a great story. You know, there's two things that, that I thought of while you were telling the story. First off is scripture. Uh, without vision, the people perish. Seems, yeah. seems straightforward and good application. The other thing is this is long before Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last. I think it was Sinek that wrote that. Yeah, Maybe correct. it's, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So, uh, gosh, what great application. How do you use that vision with your team, or was it just something you kept to yourself as a guiding principle? No, it, it, when, when you read a lot on vision, and as I said, to have that picture to be able to tell somebody, you know, this is what we're going to look like and have everybody on your team agrees, here's what we're striving for. The key component to having a strong vision in an organization is to have a clear picture. But secondly, it should be something that permeates through the entire organization. Everybody should say the same thing if asked. And you talk, and the only way you do that is by talking about it all the time. So as I said, you know, we use it as a guiding, if, if we had a win or we had a loss, it was always, hey, we're not always going to look this way. Ron, tell me, how are we going to look? And my people could then start to answer, hey, boss, you know, we joke. This is what we're going to look like when we grow up. There's a, uh, we used to have this uh, men's night, uh, you know, local country club. And we would, on Thursday nights, we would go and golf. I and some of my executive team. And the idea was that we would use it as networking to with future prospects or even current customers. And so now I'm, I'm golfing with uh, three guys and then we get done and we're having a meal afterwards. And one of the prospective customers looks over and says, Larry, he said, tell me, what is it that is your distinct advantage uh, over, over the nine other banks that are here in town? I mean, what makes you so special? And so I proceeded to tell them, you know, I went through kind of my, my rehearsed, you know, type thing. And he leaned back and Ron and he smiled and he says, you know, I've golfed with three of your bankers on separate occasions. And I asked them the same question. They told me the same thing. <laughs> All right. that's, and, and that's when you know, and then you sit yeah. back and smile as a leader, like, yeah, we're all moving towards the same thing. And we're all saying the same thing to the community. And uh, those are wonderful moments as a leader. Gosh, 
Gosh, that's great. What a great story on how you've affected culture where you're at. Um, culture is another thing that you looked at. A lot's written about it. I, I think of Peter Drucker, the, I don't know, mm. the godfather of business uh, management, or I don't know what you call him, wrote uh, and said a lot of neat things on culture. Um, what does it mean to you? And how do you really change it in an organization? Yeah, yeah. Culture, you know, again, as you mentioned, Ron, there's so much written about it, you know, but really it comes down to a couple of things. First of all, culture, I believe, is the personality of your group. And so I've always said that when you create a culture, it's the environment that creates the fulfillment for people while they're moving towards that vision. So what does it look like when you walk in? I mean, is it excited? Are people want to be there? That type of thing. And so a lot of people will ask me, well, how do you do it? How do you create it? And I'll give you two things that you don't normally hear. And I, uh, culture is bought and culture is intentional. Hmm. So cult culture is intentional because the leader sets the example, like parking in the back slot. It wasn't long before my executive bankers and the executive leaders started parking back there with me, right? And so when you, when the, they, um, you always make sure that when the door clicks behind you, when you walk into your business, that when that clicks behind you, that your culture is your primary focus and keeping that going and keeping that excitement or whatever that happens to be. So culture is very intentional. The reason I say it's bought, that usually I get some looks, uh, you know, a little bit like bought. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and, I, and I throw that out there because a lot of times, when we fall on tough times, the first thing to go is the things that we supply for our team that create that culture. So you'll see examples of cutting back on Christmas parties or you cut back on this or now we don't do these types of events, that type of thing. Now, I get it when I mean, I managed through 2008. We had to make decisions. Right. But the first thing that usually goes is the thing that builds the culture. What I tell people is culture is what carries you through the tough times. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You know, I read an article in Fortune magazine. Um, I don't know if it was this month, last month, don't remember. But um, it talked about the economy really having been bad for the last 10 years. It said that, uh, that what businesses had done is they had cut back, they'd cost cut. So uh, if there was a way to, to, I guess, trim the fat, you can only trim it so much pretty soon you got to try to start trimming people and you're into muscle and now you're trimming yeah. muscle. Um, yeah. It talked about how we had done that and that the bull market, the article was basically on bull market, whether we have one or not. But it, the reason I bring it up is because you can only trim things so far. And, and once you, once you trim the faith that people have in the company, the vision that you've created, and the culture that you've created, once you trim enough of that, you don't have that culture anymore. The vision starts going and the people start walking. They can tell when you're on a downward spiral. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So you mentioned also, and it's always a hot topic, building bench strength. Strength. There appears to be a talent gap for future <laughs> leaders. I think there always is. I remember a couple of books by Lee Iacocca, uh, who ran uh, Dodge and before that ran, yeah. uh, ran Ford. Lord. How did we get here and what can we do about it? Yeah. So uh, I don't care what organization I go into or industry that, that I coach or do business development strategy. Talent gap is always an issue. And, 
you have uh, a lot of things going on, but you've got boomers, you know, those that are born 1964 or later, you've got baby boomers that are retiring at 15,000 per day. Mm. And Gallup, Gallup did a survey not all that long ago that showed that only 11% of organizations have done anything to, to develop that talent, you know, to develop the next leadership that comes in. So business owners are staring at a, a, an abyss of a talent gap right now. <clears throat> so we got there because, frankly, Ron, we didn't take the time to develop those people and get them ready. When the recession hit, you know, boomers stayed longer than they had planned on, you know, by and large for the most part. And so they stayed in those roles, but we never took the time to really develop that next level of leadership. And so that's been, you know, kind of a challenge. That's kind of how we're getting there, you know, what we do. One of the things that I, 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 when I go into organization, there's a huge opportunity for uh, organizations to leverage. And they're usually ones that have, you know, some type of frontline manager, you know, maybe a couple layers of leadership before the executive. And we don't do enough to develop that frontline manager right away. Usually what we do, Ron, is I see organizations, they'll promote somebody that's proficient at their position, as an example. And, they, you know, they, they got all the tips and tricks and they've been very good and they show these leadership skills and so we promote them. The problem is, is that we allow those individuals to drift into what I call becoming a worker bee. So, you know, if I got promoted, I don't have any management skills right now, but I'm good at the job that we're doing. So now it becomes, hey, Ron, I can help you with that. When you come to me as an employee, I can do that. I can help you. You know, I've got the answer for that. And in the end, what we end up losing is they don't allow their people to grow and they don't grow because they get stuck. And of course, we celebrate, especially in the Midwest, you know, we celebrate all oh, that leader. They're, they're rolling up their sleeves and they're, they're digging in. But the problem is they're not developing real leadership skills. Right. So I encourage organizations right away when you promote that frontline manager, even if it's every two weeks or once a quarter, spend a couple hours talking to them about culture or negotiation or giving good feedback or how do you, how do you motivate people? How do you lead? How do you delegate? You know, these tools that you, you learn along the way, but start that right away. Mm -hmm. And then it won't be any surprise, you know, when you're ready to pull somebody up to replace that leader, you've got a pool of people for it. But a lot of times I, I kind of, what I call it, Ron, is I call it quiet management which is the idea that you were really good at your job. Now I've promoted you. So just handle that. And, and sometimes they get forgotten. Those frontline leaders get forgotten. Yeah. And it's a great opportunity. Yeah. You, you bring up several things. One, I, I think of uh, the Peter principle that people on the, the uh, I guess the worst viewpoint of this, they're, they're uh, promoted to their uh, level of incompetence. I also think of older generations. I, I love to read history, among other things. And I know that, uh, that each generation, uh, and I'm just addressing American generations, it seemed to have forgotten to pass along many of the values. <coughs> bless you. Many of the, uh, many of the things that, the strengths that they had in their generation, just, they just failed to, uh, they failed to teach them. When we fail to teach our children, what's important to us, they grow up without knowing it. And so uh, I think the yeah. true is, is the same is true in leadership. I think it's true just about everything. You know, I'm in cybersecurity. The, the, the uh, sibling podcast to this is the information playground. And, and I often talk on there how there's such a dearth of skill level. In this year, 2020, we're supposed to hit three and a half million jobs 
that go wanting simply because the skill level isn't there. And I, I've been harping it to, at uh, universities and then uh, community colleges. I've been working with, uh, in one particular case, Ivy Tech uh, is a, what's well, the largest community college in the country. They, uh, I don't know how many students they have, but it's 30 or 45 uh, campuses. Uh, they're huge. They're the only community college that the state of Indiana endorses. They've tried to lead the way to this, and a lot of things may be coming together. They're now in the high schools promoting cybersecurity skills. And I see, I mean, Code Academy, different things on the web that are free. People are finally talking about it, but here we are. It's almost like World War II all over again, where the, the war is already almost won by the other side, in this case, cyber criminals, and we're finally deciding to get into it. Yeah. I find that same lack of foresight, lack of planning and preparation and passing along skill sets, teaching skills. When we talk about leadership, when we talk about anything uh, in business, like what we're talking about. That's right. That's right. You know, you made an interesting comment there and I, I, I I'm glad you actually brought it up. It's the idea of the Peter principle, which you promote somebody to a level of incompetence. What, the reason that I think that there's a gap there is a lot of times, in my opinion, the idea of the Peter principle means that you've been pushed up and you've been tested to a point where you have finally found, you know, the peak of maybe your abilities. The issue that I see is that frontline leaders and that next level aren't being trained and given the skills. And then people just assume that the Peter principle is in effect, right? That's as good as that person will be. And the reality, so what I challenge a lot of times uh, executive leaders is I'll say, but have you tested them? Have you allowed them to fail? Mm -hmm. Have you allowed them to try an initiative? You know, what skills have you given them to kind of do that? And then you'll get those blank stares because that Peter principle is kind of whether consciously or unconsciously, they just assume that that's as good as that person was going to get, and they've never been tested. Mm. Test somebody. Test. I test my people all the time, and and allowed them to fail. And Ron, that's when they grow is through mm -hmm. that failure. That's the perfect way to do it. You have some control over the consequences. Don't let them fail where they're when they're on a stage in front of a million people. And that's right. Uh, you know nurture them and help them and prepare for that opportunity. So I want to transition. We're, uh, we're getting fairly close. We've, uh, we're about a third of the way into the podcast, a little better than that. Um, I want to talk about you as a business coach. You, you talk to a lot of leaders. You're a keynote speaker. What has changed in leadership over the two plus decades for how leaders develop the ability to lead? Yeah, I think the um, uh, the biggest thing that's changed in my world is that, uh, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you brought in a leadership coach or a business coach to help somebody that was struggling, that they were on their, maybe their way out. I was kind of almost a last resort, Ron, in, in that world. And so the conversation has changed, you know, so then it was more, I'm making suggestions. So if you think about a, a coach or a, a, a consultant, excuse me, a strategist or a consultant typically gives the answer. I see a problem, fix this. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the relationship that we had with executives at that time. And this is before me, but that's kind of where it started. Now the relationship is more collaborative. I, I typically am brought in for somebody that is doing well, that shows potential, 
but maybe has a couple areas that they need to kind of focus in on. And so the conversation is what has changed. It's more of a collaborative relationship, you know, with that executive to help them get, it's kind of like the vision, right? Okay, leader, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they say, okay, this is, this is what I want to be. Okay, well, what does that look like to you? And then you start painting that. And then the conversation goes backwards to more of a self-discovery. That's really what's changed. There's, uh, and I, authors fail me at the moment. I didn't think of this uh, prior, but I can remember the emphasis used to be on uh, developing your weaknesses. And then mm. somebody came along and wrote a book named Developing Your Strengths. I, I've forgotten who that is. The Cliff, Cliff Finders, yeah. Okay. Strength Finders, yep. yep. Okay, yes, yes. Yep. So it's a different it's a different perspective entirely. On the one hand, you're taking something that's your, your weakest skill set, we'll say, and you try to make it better. Nothing wrong with that. But if you ignore developing where your strengths really are, it, it's the difference between uh, maybe sailing on the ocean and instead flying at 30,000 feet. One, that's you right. get to see all the beauty and, and water around you. The other, you, you get to see everything. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's... Uh, it's just a difference in perspective, and I love I love the transition to it. I love where we've come. Um, I don't want to concentrate on my weaknesses. I want to concentrate on my strengths and make them better, make yeah, them stronger. Yeah. Well, we're strength finders, as you as you referenced that. You know, they that's, that was kind of their focus was focus on your strengths and then forget your weaknesses. Unless I think they use the word like fatal flaw. So if you had something that was really bad, that was really holding you back. And a lot of times leaders don't realize they have that. I mean, you could take a 360 assessment and things of that nature and right. find out feedback. But at the end of the day, there are still things if you want to get to an ex high executive level that you do have to be more well-rounded. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So has it changed in managing team members in the years you've been doing this? What changes have you seen? I'm going to assume you've seen some. And we talk about generational gaps, m managing the millennials. Is, the, is all that stuff true? Or Yeah. yeah. They, well, I had the fortune. I really had the fortune over, you know, the management part of my career encompassed about 16 years of the 21 years. And I had the ability to manage um, traditionalists. I had uh, baby boomers. I had Gen Xers like myself. And then millennials for the most part. And the Z generation, I really never got a chance to manage, although I got two of them at home. <laughs> so, so, I get <laughs> so you have to manage them anyway. <laughs> you manage them a little different, yeah. yeah. And, and, and what, I, what I found was there are some differences. So a lot of times your, your boomers were maybe a little bit more loyal, you know, for the, by and large for the most part. Had a real sense of pride in being very proficient at their job, you know. And, and so they... Uh, typically stayed with an organization and they wanted to know that they were very sufficient and that they were rewarded for being very proficient at their job. But there was a downside. You know, I had a manager one time that was a boomer, a great manager, but I, I, I was, I finally got the courage to say, Hey, I've been doing some good things. I want a pay raise, right? You know, I want a mid year. And he said, um, he said, Larry, it took me 32 years to get to the midpoint of my salary range. And I thought, wow, that's, that's not good. That's not the answer that, that I don't want to wait for 32 years. And so there was a, but, but there was a, there was an interesting piece with managing those individuals, making sure that they were set up to be 
you know, successful. The, the Gen Xers like my age, you know, really run by and large for the most part, early adopters of technology. But those, that generation, my generation really pushed the work-life balance. And so, and there's many different nuances, but you had to create a culture that that was okay, right? Get the job done, but you had to do that. The millennials, I get asked a lot. And the millennials are a very talented group of individuals. But what millennials are doing, you know, the, 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 the boomer themselves asked a lot, you know, the corporation asked a lot of them and they responded. The millennials are changing, in my opinion, in that they're asking more of the organization. There are, and there's no wrong in that. The organizations are having to reinvent themselves and be able to give them an environment that is fulfilling and that they have a path. So when you think about managing, as an example, my generation was motivated. Have you ever heard the, the terminology, the, the, the donkey and the carrot, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so I'm the donkey and my manager sits on my back with a fishing pole ahead of me and a carrot hanging there. And, and that carrot represented whether it was a pay raise or a corner office. And we just did whatever we had to do to get that. We, we, we fought and it was competitive, but we wanted those types of things. The millennial is more of a, a, a collaborative conversation. What they, in my opinion, what I found is that vision that we talked about, giving them that ability to say, okay, if you want the corner office, here's the four or five things that you have to do, and then frequently talk about those things with them. So me, I used to, in my early years, Ron, I used to get feedback once a year. You, you remember you get your performance review, you get it yes. once a year. I remember those say, days. Yeah, they'd say, okay, here's your raise, here's your rating, and, uh, you know, keep, keep doing a good job, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't manage that way today. It has to be more of an ongoing dialogue that's collaborative, partnering to help them achieve their goals, and that's where you get the most out. See, I became self-employed, and, and although my, my boss can be a, a hard taskmaster sometimes, he gives me instant feedback all the time. Sometimes mm -hmm. I don't like it, you know, but I, but yeah. I get instant feedback and constant. Um, you know, I want to take a, a, a break, just a, a really quick break for a moment. When we come back, I want to talk about some tips uh, that, uh, that you've given, some that you've received, some sure. that you really like. Um, I want to keep going down this road, uh, but just for the moment, uh, you're listening to uh, Larry Young, uh, the author of uh, Walking the Sales Plank, and Ron Bush. Um, I'm with Ron Bush Consulting, and uh, this is Chatting with Ron. You can uh, find us on Mondays, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. and uh, Friday afternoons at 1 p.m., on WVLP, that's WVLP.org, and I hope you stream it that way. Uh, if you're looking at this on demand in a podcast format, uh, you'll find us on uh, quite a few, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Breaker, and w one of the, the strengths of Anchor FM is they continue look, uh, continually look for other markets for you and find other uh, podcast hosts. So... Um, with that, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're a regular listener to Chatting with Ron, well, I hope you think about sponsoring us. And if you if you go to any of these uh, um, hosts that I've mentioned, Apple Podcast, whatever, there will be an opportunity for uh, for you to do that. Um, with where we're at with Larry, um, I would like to, I don't want to forget, would you let people know your website and how people can get in touch with you? Maybe it's by email, maybe it's just going to the website. 
what works best for you? Yeah, the, uh, boilingfrogdevelopment.com is is my is my website. So you can go on there, and there's uh, there's there's some tips and some information, some downloadables and things. Otherwise, you can reach me at sales at boilingfrogdevelopment.com, and that's Excellent. my direct email. And so um, I, I try to return those within 24 hours. Great, Bo boiling frog. Um, there's a there's a an old book, uh, the frog in the kettle, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Does this have something to do with that or how'd you come up with the name? It has everything to do with it. So we've been talking about leadership and building culture. And a lot of times when you would go into those, those markets, you know, the team that was already there didn't realize that thing had, things had changed. And so it's based on the parable of the boiling frog, which is if you throw a frog in hot water, it senses the danger that jumps out. But if you put it in cold water, slowly turn up the heat, it doesn't realize that the environment had changed. And in most of those markets, you know, a lot of times they didn't realize that things subtly changed over time and that what they were doing wasn't working. And so the parable of the boiling frog, that's why I formed the name Boiling Frog Development. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's get back to it. As a leadership coach, you obviously give tips. Um, if you'd like to share a few of those, that would be great. But let's start with the best tip you've ever received. Maybe the best wow. three if you got more than one. Yeah. Well, I've gotten a, a, a lot of great tips over the years. There, there's one that I think resonates, especially when you're trying to grow market share or you're trying to grow an organization. So we talked about vision and that type of thing. But it was 2012, and uh, we had come off, the, the, the teams of mine had all come off, you know, six, seven years of just great, outstanding results. I mean, goal here, achievement, you know, was clear up here. And so at the end of 2012, we barely hit our plan. You know, so, so we just right at our goal and nobody thought anything of it, but I made the mistake that most leaders do, you know, it's kind of the idea that, you know, uh, work harder, you know, so you just continue, you know, if, if something worked in the past and then slowed down, well then just put more time in. So I worked harder rather than smarter. And so, you know, 40 hours became 50 and 50 becomes 60 and 70 and 80 and on and on forth, demanding more of, of the team. At the end of 2013, Ron, that same collective group of people hit half of our goal. It was a dark time. Yeah, we hit half of us. You put all that work in. So I went to, I couldn't figure out, you know, well, what is what is really fundamentally changed? We got vision. We got all this type of thing, you know. We're doing everything that we had done in the past. So I went to a mentor friend of mine, and I, and I asked him, I said, you know, this is what's happening, and I just can't seem to figure this out. And the question that he has asked me radically changed my leadership after that and will even change your listeners. The question that he asked me was, when is the last time you did something for the first time? Hmm. Yeah. And I, and I had the same reaction, like, wow, it's, it's been a while. And what I realized is that one of the biggest killers of success is success itself. Yeah. And so a lot of times, Ron, we get complacent. Things are going. And so you quit kind of looking to innovate. You quit kind of quit doing things. You know, there's nothing wrong with process, but you still have to be kind of looking at what are the changing economic factors out there, or things that outside are going to affect my business, and are we adapting the move? And I realized that it had been a while since I had done something new. And so I learned to just start reinventing myself, and we were back, you know, back going in a short amount of time. You know, it reminds me of Zig Ziglar uh, used to used to love to talk about everyone knows what a grave is. A rut is just a grave with the ends knocked out. And, and yeah. that was one of his lines. I can't tell you um, how effective that that tip is. Um, it's been a while. 
since I did something new. Although uh, I will say uh, joining NSA uh, was new for me, but it was just part of a plan. It was just a continuation. Uh, I love that. I'm going to give it yeah. some more thought. Uh, yeah. um, so um, you're, I would think, and I'm sure others would uh, would agree with me that uh, you're at the top uh, of your field. Uh, you're published author. You're uh, a ready recognized keynote speaker. Um, I've often hear that it's uh, lonely at the top. It's an old cliche. Mm. How did you stay motivated ahead of your team when you were leading them, providing the vision? And what do you do now? Yeah. Yeah. How do you no, stay motivated? Yeah. Well, especially when, uh, you know, we talked about culture and mission and we talked about the vision and you have to paint that. And so you have to come in every day, you know, um, being able to do that when you don't want to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you stay motivated? There's two things that I always focused on and they're some of the best tips I would give back. First of all, readers are leaders. Readers are leaders. And, and, if, and if you ask my boys, my, my two boys, I said the Z generation, mm -hmm. I said, if, if you said readers are, they'll both finish the statement because I say it all the time. But your top CEOs today, Ron, read between 50 and 55 books a year. I mean, and that doesn't matter whether that's a, a you know, a wealthy Warren Buffett or a Bill Gates all the way down to a Mark Zuckerberg or a Elon Musk. These, these people read books. And the reason why that's important is you can't stay stuck in your comfort zone when your mind is moving forward. Yeah. And so when you're picking up a book and you're reading something on culture or feedback or whatever it happens to be, you're learning something, a tip or something that will make you better. The second thing that is really powerful, and I, I do this in the coaching, I kind of force this in a way, but do you have a personal board of advisors around you? that are designed to push and help you develop a certain skill. So think about the strengths and the weaknesses. I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a neat story, but most of your listeners, if I, if I say the word Roger Bannister, the name Roger Bannister, most people recognize Roger Bannister as being the first person to break the, the one mile in four minutes, right? A feat that nobody thought could happen. And even as he approached that and got close to it, people thought that it was humanly, physically impossible. Now, usually when you hear the story of Roger Bannister, you'll, you, most people talk about once he broke the, you know, the barrier, then people then started flooding in and, and, you know, now there was no limit, right? People could now start to attain that. And that's a great story when you think about Roger Bannister, but there's a narrative in that story that I like. And Roger, when he broke that that day, and I think in 1954 or 55, he used something that was controversial, but it was legal and he used pacers. And the Pacers were, were individuals that were on his team that could run as fast as Roger. They just didn't have the endurance to go the whole way. Mm -hmm. And so that day, he used two Pacers the day he broke that. And, and, they, uh, and his only job was to keep up with them. So those guys are watching the clock. They're running as fast as they can. And when the first Pacer runs out of gas, you know, he kind of fades away. The second one comes in, and he kind of – keeps the pace going, watching it, that type of thing. And it's four times around the, la the, the track. So about three, three and a half laps in, that pacer loses. He, he can't go anymore. And then Roger gallops into history, right? And then he breaks the record. If you've seen it, you know, he falls into the people. He's got nothing left. Yeah. So the question that I always ask leaders, and it's something to challenge your, your listeners with, are who are the pacers in your life? 
who are the people that you put in your race, if you will, mm -hmm. to be able to push you on certain aspects of your development that are going to hold you accountable and set the mark. So if I need to find something, if I'm in an organization, I need to give better feedback. I need to find a pacer, if you will, that, that is great at giving feedback for people and let them set the standard for me so that when I'm done, I can kind of fall into the if arms or however you want to, the analogy, you know, I just don't have anything left, meaning I've got somebody that's always going to push me and give me the information. One of the best powerful tips I could give any leader, who are your personal board of advisors? Who are your pacers? When I, uh, when I go back and listen to this, that's going to be one of the things that I write down. Um, and the other thing is you said it and it, it just hit me. I'm a reader too. And I'm my goal for this year. Uh, I finished uh, last year with 60, I think it was 67 books. This year I want to read 75. Most of them are, are not. I, I throw in a, a, a fiction once in a while, but, but the vast majority of those are nonfiction books, but they're all over the place. They're anything from history to business to, um, uh, well, of course, uh, you know, cybersecurity and those things. The, the statement that you made is you cannot stay in your comfort zone when your mind is racing forward. Yeah. That was one of the most profound things I can remember hearing. And I don't know how long I will, uh, I will write that. I can't wait to end it so I can make a note of it for you. Yeah. Uh, so excellent, excellent. What is one of the hallmarks of great leadership that you've seen coaching some of the great leaders? Oh yeah, the um, so all the things you know that we've talked about all all help encompass you know great leadership. But there's I'll give you two because they kind of work hand in hand: fearlessness and humility. And so a lot of your leaders um, that, that have to be fearless, not only fearless themselves, but as I mentioned earlier, you have to be able to create an, a, an environment where, where your team is not afraid to fail and that you celebrate, uh, you know, success. So the reason why I use fear and, and, and kind of the humility or, or awareness, if you will, together is think about a chart, right? Just a normal chart with two, what do you call it, axis, you know? And on one side is fearless, and then on the other side is awareness of what's going on in your organization. And, and so if you have somebody that's incredibly aware, but they're too afraid to pull the trigger, then you've got somebody that really isn't going to make any, take any chances. They're really not going to grow. But if you have somebody that's fully on the fearless side, but they're not aware, you have somebody making devastating mistakes, right? So, so a leader has to find that balance between their making calculated and fearless type decisions. I spoke to a group of about 350 executives on this topic. And, and one of the stories that I told, it's not really a story, but it was an interview, Jeff Bezos, whether, you, whether you're a fan of Amazon or not. I, one of the things he said in an interview that I really, really liked is he said, we try to have about 75% of the information to make a decision. If we wait around for 90 to 95% of it, you know, to us, uh, the information to make a decision, we'll miss opportunities mm -hmm. because we're spending too long, you know, it's the paralysis of analysis. Right. And, and so what he really focuses on around 75%, it's not really a magic number, but it kind of gives the person the idea. Now, here's the key in that, that he went on to say, is that they were accepting of failures. So when Jeff Bezos, when they 
when they open a, f a fulfillment center, as an example, they expect that to go off perfect because they've done that 50, 60, 70, however many times. So that's a process that they're, they know, and that should go off without any problems. But if they're doing something that impacts the customer experience or something that they're trying a new product, they're not afraid to fail. I mean, he'll tell you in even some of his interviews that they're not afraid to be able to um, fail at these things because they know that it'll continue to push them to think farther for their customers and try. And so I think fear, you know, that fear and that uh, awareness are, 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 are big things. We learn from our mistakes and great leaders create a culture that is accepting of those mistakes. And that's how you, that's how you really, really win. Gosh, that's, uh, that's excellent. I can recall back when you talk about Bezos um, early on, I, I was one of those people that said I would never go to an electronic book. Now that's all I, I read just about. Right, right. You see a few behind me, but I've already read those. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. uh, so it, they're, they're mostly for reference. The electronic book, and, and I used to tell people this, well, I can take I usually take six, uh, depending on how long I'm going to be gone. If I'm gone a week, I'll take five or, or anywhere from three to five books, depending on size. Um, if I'm gone, like on a two-week vacation, I'll take six or seven books. Well, in the old days, that took up a lot of room. Yeah. I can take hundreds of books with me now, and I just carry yeah. them around on an iPad or some sort of tablet. I can access them uh, anytime that I want to. I don't even have to turn on the light if it's the middle of the night. So I can remember, I started with the Nook because Barnes and Noble seemed to me to really love books and reading, whereas Amazon seemed to be, this is a means to an end. I can make money selling electronic books, I'm gonna do it. But what stuck with me about, about Amazon and, and, and Bezos is the commitment. They lost money year after year after year. Barnes and Noble uh, got rid of the guy that had the vision. I've, I've long forgotten his name, but he was the CEO. They got rid of him uh, because he was he was pushing towards the electronic books, and and they just couldn't see it. They didn't have the vision for that. Yeah. Uh, whereas Bezos did, and convinced his investors to give him more time. And year after year, the guy lost money, and yet they still put more money into it. Yeah. I don't know if he's. A, I think he is a reader. Um, and I do think he, he has a joy of reading. But regardless or not, what he managed to do is what you've been talking about all along, first off with vision, uh, and then again with uh, just now with fearlessness. Man, that, that's a great story. Uh, and because I love reading, it's, uh, it's uh, kind of close to my heart. Sure. Um, what would be one thing that holds most leaders back if, if – uh, uh, fearlessness and humility uh, gain them forward. I, before we go there, actually on humility, you know, I, I just saw a, uh, a little video with Sinek uh, the other day, Simon Sinek, and he was talking, he had this uh, chart that he drew, and he had, uh, I forget, I shouldn't have brought it up now, I can't remember what it was, but he, he drew a metric, and basically what it was, uh, he was talking about, I think, uh, uh, the SEALs, when they look for someone for leadership, they look for someone who is uh, trustworthy and they, yeah. they basically determine that on the battlefield. Can I trust this guy to be accurate at what he does, make good decisions and, and defend me? And then 
also his values off the field. And that's not what they call it, but I don't remember what they call it. So you want somebody that is got values in the right place, and I'm going to use humility for that. And you want someone who's fearless on the other side. And, and what he come, came away with was that often the jerks, the guys that are just awful to be around, they're, we all know the kind of person that's uh, just a miserable human being and makes everybody else miserable. Right. Um, he, uh, that's not the guy you want to lead, maybe. At least that's, that's not right. what the SEALs think. They want somebody who has the ability to accomplish that but they want the values there. He's got to be a real human being that treats others well. That's the humility side. Yeah. And really humility, humility is easy to do in an organization. If you're not afraid, if you create a culture that you're not afraid to fail. Right. Right. So they kind of go hand in hand a little bit that it's okay to jump, right. Or to jump into an opportunity. If you have a boss that supports, I, I, I just told a group of leaders, uh, it was later this fall, I was sharing with them. Somebody asked me, you know, what are, what are some of the things that, you know, helped you rebuild markets? And we, you know, we had talked about some of these things, but one of the things that I told them and I gave a compliment to my, to my old bosses, they gave me a, a white sheet of paper and they said, design it how you want to design that. And so all this stuff that I'm sharing with you, you and your listeners all came out of just trial and error. But here's the thing. I had a boss that had my back. I had a boss that said, Larry, go do what you're great at. And then we'll just evaluate and see what, you know, see what will come of it. Now, I did have the fortune that my first market or some of those markets were doing so bad, I couldn't mess them up too much <laughs> more, <laughs> you know, but I was given that ability and it was okay to fail. And I failed. I failed all the time. But out of that bore these ideas I share, you know, with you and your listeners. Great. Yeah. So what do you think is the, the one thing that hold most leaders back? Would it be fear? Yeah, I think, I think, I think fear is a lot of it. I mean, anything, anything that we talked about as being, you know, overly positive, the opposite would, would hold somebody back. There is a, there is an interesting thing uh, for leaders to consider. And a lot of times we make, we talked about the Jeff Bezos, the 75%. Well, a lot of times um, leaders sometimes will make poor decisions based on a lack of information. So they don't have the right information to do that. Now that might seem like a duh, but there's a little bit more of a, a deepness to it. We think as leaders, a lot of times, Ron, that we pull, you know, all this experience that we have, and then we make a decision. We, and and the way we call that an informed decision. And that's the way you're supposed to. You, you, you take all your experience and try to make the best possible thing. What, what research finds, uh, what tells us is that we actually make decisions by and large the opposite way. What we do is we tend to make up our mind and then we'll find all those things around us to justify why it's correct. There's fascinating research. It's called choice blindness is, and, and they've done uh, studies over the last 15, 16 years. If you ever look it up, a gentleman, I, I, Peter Johansson with, um, uh, he was a Swedish researcher, but he started testing this. And what he would find is he could, he could manipulate, like you would do a survey, he would switch the answers through sleight of hand, hand it back to you, and then you would sit there and justify why you made these decisions when they weren't even the decisions you made, right? <laughs> and it's fascinating. Yeah. He did it in many different, different scenarios and things, but there's, what it shows is that we make up, I guess I said, we make up our mind and then we'll do anything to justify it. 
I mean, you think about for your listeners, if they think, ah, do we really, you, know, <laughs> you don't have, you don't have to go much farther than talking about politics or religion, right? Mm -hmm. To come across somebody that's going to go, Oh, I, you know, I got my mind made up and they can quote any, whether it's scripture or they can read anything they heard or something to justify uh -huh. why they're right and you're wrong. And so um, I share this with leaders a lot because I start to challenge them a little bit around what's the premise behind making that decision? How did you really come to that? You know, that type of thing. And what you'll find is that they make decisions actually the opposite way that is the most effective and that holds them back. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, Joe Hansen is the same guy that wrote um, Factfulness. I think it's the same guy. Gates recommended that uh, he just died uh, not too long after finishing Factfulness. Uh, excellent okay. book, uh, and it sounds like something he would do. Um, what are some of your proudest career achievements? You know, um, I think it's always great for me to look at, um, you know, promotions and things like that because that was always a validation that I was doing something, but. When I talk about my proudest um, achievements, the things that I remember, the things now that I'm not in the corporate world, I'm doing my own thing. The things that are still up on my mantle are, are awards that my team gave me. Hmm. They were ones where um, maybe they had nominated me quietly, you know, for either a manager of the year or something like that and things like that that I had uh, won. I was always really um, proud of those because it came from the people I cared about the most, right? Um, and that's just the way I managed. One of the things I'm particularly proud of when I look back, and I think it gives gives me a good sense of I maybe did something positive, you know, in this world. It, during a 10-year a period in the corporate world, I had almost 60, I think it was 62 or 63 position promotions of people underneath me that were direct reports of mine people that went into a higher level of authority or a higher position. Cause my goal was always when I walked in, we talked about culture was to grow people and, and to promote that have that many people. And again, they did the hard work. I just was the guide, but to see that many people get promoted, I had in, you know, like a four year period, I had four bankers that worked for me that went on to become bank presidents at other banks. Mm sad to see them go, you know, because then they became kind of a, I don't say enemy, you know, that type of thing, but, but, you know, uh, competitors is probably right. a better word, but, but it was, it was nice to be able to see that they grew that talent and developed that talent to be able to take on their own markets, their own institution. And I'm particularly proud of those accomplishments, Ron. Gosh, that's great. Yeah. Seeing yourself uh, or being a mentor, not seeing yourself, but being a mentor and having the one that you're mentoring uh, go on to, to greater success. Uh, that's, uh, that's just fantastic. You know, I think we, I think we talked about uh, just real quick. I think last time we were, we were talking, I, I think I threw out, and this is a good, uh, uh, another tip, but if, if you, people ask me about growing these markets and, and uh, I always say, if you want to grow your market or grow your revenue, grow your people. Mm -hmm. And that, that was something that for me, we talked about culture. When the door clicked behind me and I came in every morning, that was the ideas is I just always felt like I could, if I poured myself into my people and developed them, whatever skill, you know, be, be on top of it, understand what skill they want and their vision statement, where, where do they want to be when they grow up? And if I always focused on that, I could retain them 
they were getting better and it was a better experience for my customers. So when people were frustrated early on, you, you can amount imagine because I said it a few times, but I would look at them and say, it's not always going to be this way. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you're going to be the banker of choice in this market. People are going to come to you. It won't always be this way. And that was the story that I always told over and over and over again so that they, they were always growing. And when you do that, great things will always happen for yourself as well. Wasn't it, um, who was it? Uh, oh, I, sh- I should, um, Zig, Zig, Zig Ziglar, I think, said it, that if you help enough people get what you want, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's really kind of the same idea. If you help people achieve their dreams and leadership or that next step, or maybe for some people didn't want to get promoted, they just wanted to have more fulfillment and proficiency in their job again, depending on generation, um, just help them get this. And, and you'll have all the revenue and customers and growth and profitability that you need. And, and then those, those awards will come. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, we talked a lot about reading. I've got to ask you, what kind of leadership books do you read? Do you have favorite authors? What do you read? Yeah. So um, a lot of times it's really vogue to talk about a leadership book, right? You know, because everybody wants to know what does it take to be a robust leader? And there's great books out there. I have no problems with them and I, I read them from time to time. What I focus on and what I, what I would tell people that, that ask me like at a keynote, somebody will inevitably ask me, you know, what, <coughs> excuse me, what books do you read? And I'll say, if you want, if you want to read something good, read great management books. Hmm. But management books aren't really sexy, are they? I mean, you know, nobody says, hey, you know, I'm a management consultant, right? Everybody wants to be a leadership consultant, right? Or, mm-hmm. And management just seems so out of flavor. But here's the truth. The truth is, is that leadership always follows great management. So as an example, if you want to be a great leader, learn how to manage by giving great feedback or giving a great performance review or how to, how to conduct a difficult conversation. Read a management book around there. Read, a, read a, a management book around building a culture or whatever it happens to be, those fundamental things that sometimes people yawn, you know, like, oh, right? But if you become great at those management skills, the leadership will follow. The leader will totally follow. And so a lot of times when people ask me, it's not really per se that it's a leadership book, but I focus on certain aspects that help me be better in my business or in that world better at them. So uh, there's, there's a really good book on like negotiation. Um, uh, it's called um, Never Split the Difference. Fantastic read. It's a really, really, really good read. It was done by a, an old FBI investigator, you know, and so it's kind of that. Um, and this, that's got some great tips in there for anybody in, in sales. Uh, culture. I like um, Adam Grant has some stuff. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called Give and Take, um, which really talks about people in an organization like you had said earlier, some are spoilers and some are the people that get it done. I think those are other ones. There's a, uh, of all the books I read, I'll even, I'll even go this far and I get nothing for this, but all the books I read, there's one that I read about a month ago that I just wished I would have read 15 years ago. And it's called The Power of Moments. Have you read that, Ron? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's, it's a must read. So the, the, the Power of Moments. And it's really the idea of, of that you have great things happen to you in life that you remember. And mm-hmm. then you have bad things in life that you remember, right? And those things just happen to us. But what do you do day in, day out to create moments that are powerful 
for either yourself or for others. And I think it should almost be a must read for, for most managers. Again, I don't get anything for it, but I just, I could not put it down. And I thought about it. It's something that you can apply to your personal life, like a moment with your child, right? And how do you have a conversation that creates a moment that they'll remember forever? Maybe a moment with your wife. Okay. That's on the personal side, but on the professional side, how do you pull an employee aside and say, you know, Ron, you're, you're not doing so well. What's going on? Right. How, how can we make you better? Just creating a moment that they'll remember forever that'll change their life and being very intentional. I love that book. Love that book. Sounds great. You convinced me. I'll be picking that up today. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we've reached the end of our program and uh, what a great note to end on. Larry, it's always a pleasure having a conversation with you, seeing you uh, in person or, uh, or virtually. Uh, it's, uh, it's both a treat. One last time, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, email at sales at boilingfrogdevelopment.com is one way. Otherwise, you can go to my website, which will have that information on there at www.boilingfrogdevelopment.com. Excellent. People can get a hold of me at ronbushconsulting.com. Email me, ron at ronbushconsulting.com. Uh, check out the podcast and Apple Podcast or uh, whatever. Uh, uh, hosting platform you prefer, certainly um, go to WVLP and listen to the radio program. And if you're uh, local in Indiana, check out how to get involved in the, in the, uh, in the neighborhood and the community there. Thank you for being with us today, Larry, and thank you listeners for being with us today. Join us again on Chatting with Ron. <laughs>